Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And joining us a little bit later will be Charlotte head coach, Robert Woodard, who will join us to talk a little bit about uh, how Charlotte is approaching summer ball, um, you know, in terms of playing and not playing players and, and how you continue development. Uh, his first year with the program and with uh, the news of North Carolina's Mike Fox's retirement, uh, Woodard, who played and coached uh, under Fox, we'll get into that a little bit. And I guess, uh, Joe, that's a, a relevant point to start with here. We are recording on August 7, which was last Friday, which was the day Mike Fox announced his retirement after 22 seasons at North Carolina, 37 years of head coaching uh, between UNC and North Carolina Wesleyan. He was the winningest active coach in the country this spring uh, and now uh, is stepping away uh, to spend more time with his family. Uh, he, I guess after the last five months uh, was just kind of reevaluating his, his priorities and everything and is now going to go all in on spending time uh, with his family. This is a move that kind of had been rumored for a while, and now it is coming to pass. And by for a while, I mean for the last couple of years. Uh, Scott Forbes, who spent the last 19 years on staff at UNC and played for Fox at North Carolina Wesleyan, was announced as the head coach um, You know, in the same release that announced Fox's retirement. So random randomly newsy friday here uh in college baseball in, at the start of august uh joe and i will uh we'll get to all of that and and, and more uh so joe there, there's a lot going on but uh you know we're uh we're here in august and we're uh we're continuing on with the the baseball america college podcast and uh rapidly getting close to to the start of of uh you know colleges around the country especially with their their early starts uh, kids are headed back to campus, and uh, you know, before you know it, uh, it'll it'll be the fall. It's uh, the summer here is, is flying by. Yeah, I got uh, well, a couple things there. Um, first, let me let me hit you with this hypothetical. This is related to a Slack discussion we had um, internal at Baseball America Slack, where staffer Josh Norris, who many of you listeners out there might know, um, following on Twitter, reading his work. Um, he saw a rooster outside of our office, which apparently this is a thing that happens. I'm fairly new. I was not aware of said rooster. Um, does that count as birding that he saw a rooster outside and he like observed the rooster? I think it counts as birding. He said, no, I, I say, no, first of all, Josh is like an active actual birder. So I think we do have to defer to Josh, but I also say no, because the rooster is a domestic bird 
even if this one may or may not be feral, I don't know. I wasn't there, uh, but it, it's still a domestic bird. Mm, interesting. Okay. Well, that see, that's an argument. I mean, Josh being an actual birder, I guess we do have to defer. And the, the domesticity part is interesting. I find that argument persuasive and compelling. Um, I, I was inclined to say it is birding. Um, now I'm obviously not sure, but just because it, it feels like we were making a value judgment on the rooster, that the rooster itself is not <laughs> enough of a bird to be considered birding. And then so like that leads you down the road of like, well, where's the cutoff of like, like observing a pigeon, is that birding? Because when we see pigeons all the time and, you know, so I just felt like there was like a, a weird kind of evaluation being made there about why it wasn't birding. That's, it's a good point about the domesticity. So that's, um, yeah, that's something, certainly something to think about there. Uh, yeah, back on the topic of, of kids going back to school and colleges starting back up. And I think this, well, first of all, it really kind of hits you in the face, right? Like we've been talking about a lot of the discussion has been through the prism of college football and for a long time, it just felt like they were in this game of just kicking the can further and further down the road, and they were. But then all of a sudden, like the last couple of weeks, it's just kind of hit us in the face. Like, here's our schedules. We're doing a, you know, all conference play in the case of some conferences, or a, a nine plus one, or a, a, you know, all the different models they're doing. And oh, by the way, here's our schedule grid, and it starts in a month in some cases. And so all of a sudden, here it is. Like it really kind of smacked us in the face. And I think this has. Um, implications for baseball. Um, you know, we won't know really until it happens what they are, but you know, how well this goes, um, whether or not football goes off without a hitch, uh, what it means for, uh, there are still more and more FCS schools, by the way, that are moving to spring schedules. Um, that as we're recording now is kind of feels like the ball has picked up steam again in a lot of places at the FCS level. A lot of those FCS schools also play baseball. So I think we're going to learn a lot about what our college baseball season is going to look like just through how well football goes. And I think just as a general rubric, maybe you disagree a little bit, but I think as a, as a general rule, uh, the more normal to the extent we can ever achieve normal right now, but the more normal football looks and feels and how well it goes, I think the more normal baseball will look to the extent that it, it can. I think disruptions, interruptions and weirdness tends to, cast a little more doubt onto not doubt, but just, I think creates a higher level of variability in what baseball looks like among the millions of unanswered questions we have. So I think I'm not alone in, in really watching this college football season, not only as a fan of the sport, but also as someone who cares about college baseball and seeing how this sport being played or not. And Oh, by the way, basketball coming not far behind it. Uh, what kind of ramifications that will have for baseball? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, the, the way football and the rest of the fall sports do or do not come off uh, is, is going to be hugely important for winter sports and then eventually spring sports as well. Um, you know, and the, the football question has added importance uh, as places look to spring football as, as another option. So I wrote about this, uh, you can read it, over on the website about what a spring football season would mean for baseball. And so as these conferences and entire divisions now are making decisions about when they want to play their fall sports season, if they want to play it, um, you know, the division three and division two have already called off fall sports championships, which probably is going to mean uh, that the, all the conferences 
cancel fall sports um, like we saw in the spring. They said that they weren't going to move them to the spring, uh, that moving them into the spring semester didn't make sense for them. Uh, but we've also seen the SWAC, uh, which is one of the half dozen to 10 conferences uh, in Division One that have called off fall sports. They've already said that they want to put fall sports into the spring and come out with a rough outline of how that would happen. Um, and, and other conferences are going to look at that. The Ivy League suggested they would look at that. And, you know, right now, the biggest conferences are not looking at that. You know, the Joe, you mentioned the, the schedule grids, the ACC and the, the Big Ten both came out with those uh, this week. Um, you know, I think the other conferences are not that much farther behind uh, on presenting uh, schedules. And so they're right now not really in a fall sports go to the spring mode, but that can change tomorrow. Um, you know, th things are things are fluid right now. So it's uh, it's a thing that baseball and all other spring sports potentially will have to deal with it has the potential to cause a massive amount of disruption if it came to that. Uh, you know, so just from a pure, like, let's get it played standpoint, uh, you know, from baseball, like that would be very significant uh, that they wouldn't have to worry about the disruption. And then, you know, everyone around college baseball is, is certainly rooting for a successful fall sports campaign. One, because of what that would mean uh, for the pandemic and, and the response there. Uh, you know, uh, to the pandemic, too, because most of them just like watching football or soccer or, you know, the, the rest of this fall sports their schools compete in. And, and, and then three, because, you know, we've already had one season lost. No, nobody wants to add another season to that. But, you know, we, we've seen various conferences, various levels, uh, you know, junior college did it. Um, have have already been the bullet and, and, and moved fall sports to the spring or just canceled them outright. So uh, it's definitely something to watch. A successful football season would give a whole lot of confidence, I think, to everyone in winter and spring sports that they too can be pulled off because if football can be pulled off, everything should be able to be pulled off. Um, football is obviously uh, a massive undertaking. Uh, the roster sizes are the biggest. It's, the most contact, like it costs the most money all on and on and on. Uh, nothing else is really like it. And, and so if they can do that, they should be able to do just about anything, assuming conditions continue similarly. It's certainly been a question on people's lips too. I, I don't know about you, but I've had more conversations and I think some of it is driven by the fact that football has inched and then sped ever closer uh, in recent days. But I've had the conversation about sp the spring baseball season more in the last seven to 10 days than I'd had in the months beforehand. And there are some obvious reasons for that. But I also think that I think there's a little bit of a realization that, um, that this has been in some ways getting sports started back up collegiately has been harder than I think a lot of people imagined it would have been when we shut down in March and April. I mean, I remember, really optimistic discussions about summer ball. Um, and obviously we, we saw how that went where it was a little bit of a mixed bag. So I think there's also just a, a general realization about, hey, it might not be as easy to just say in February, whatever the day is going to be this year, we're going to roll the balls out there and get going. Um, and by the way, just I know you've had several conversations with folks the same way that I have that 
I, I think there's one thing that Teddy, Teddy and I know very little about how the college baseball season is going to play out because those factors have not, the factors that uh, will be important there have not yet happened and have not yet played out. However, just in conversations that we've had, the season is not going to look like it has looked. There will be no normal looking college baseball season in 2021. Now there are degrees of that, but uh, there's going to be a lot different there. So um, I think it's important to set that expectation now that it's not going to be 300 teams or whatever we end up with, you know, 300 teams starting on February, the second weekend in February, uh, all at the same time. And everybody's going to play 50 to 56 games. It's, it's not going to be that. And that, that much we can guarantee, but beyond that, uh, a lot of what we see in the next three, four or five months is going to have a lot of bearing on what we see in February, March and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a lot of unknown. I, I think unknown is that it won't be uh, what you're used to. Uh, but right now, uh, if you gave me anything college baseball wise uh, next spring, I, I think I'd, I'd be pretty happy about it. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can, can share in that sentiment. So Agreed. We'll, uh, we'll continue tracking that. We'll continue tracking the football season, uh, mostly because I just want to watch football. <laughs> but also because it, it does have uh, additional bearing on, on everything else that's happening right now. That's, um, you know, a, a very important thing to remember when we're talking about college baseball or any other college sport, they don't happen in a vacuum. And when we're talking about baseball, it is important to remember uh, that, you know, much as Joe and I might prefer that it be a little further up the pecking order than it is like, there are other things that are on, you know, that, that, you know, superseded in terms of revenue and therefore, you know, attention given to it and, you know, look no further than any number of NCAA decisions that, you know, the board of directors or the, the division one counselor, whoever has, has handed down about baseball. Um, and, and so you have to remember all of that. Uh, when, when we're when we're considering this, so um, you know, as uh, as it continues, we'll uh, we'll continue to track it, of course. Uh, but let's uh, let, let's turn our attention to something a little more, um, you know, I, I, I suppose certain, uh, a little more uh, a little more fun to think about, I suppose, and that, that's our interview with uh, with Robert Woodard, uh, the. Um, the Niners uh, that, that he took over there in Charlotte uh, went nine and eight this season. And, uh, you know, if you look at their, their schedule, uh, I, I would say the season was every bit as up and down as uh, about a 500 record indicates. Um, so, you know, it, an interesting first season uh, for Charlotte, but, you know, definitely a lot of reasons to be excited. And he'll get into those uh, with us here as well as talk a little bit about, you know, the player development aspect, which is uh, a really important piece, uh, both in his coaching story and just, uh, you know, in general in, in, in college baseball, of course, and uh, kind of some of the unique ways that Charlotte has gone about player development uh, in this unique situation that, that the pandemic has, uh, has created. So let's get to our interview with uh, Charlotte coach Robert Woodard. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to welcome Charlotte head coach Robert Woodard to to the program. Uh, coach, it's uh, it's been an interesting summer for everyone, uh, interesting year for you in, in your first year uh, as a head coach. Uh, 
but how are you uh, how are you handling this uh, this unusual summer with uh, all this additional downtime that we've had? Yeah, no, I mean it, it, we are we're five months into uncharted territory, and um, you know if you've ever had a GPS with no roadmap, uh, you know for the for the street you're on, that's kind of what it feels like in a way. Um, so yeah, just trying to control what we can control here at Charlotte, just as an athletic department and as a program. Um, you know, all the cliches one day at a time kind of thing, but it's really, I mean, you, you, you can wake up one morning right now and, um, you know, you can, the numbers can be getting better and we can be feel like we're moving closer to getting back to normal. And then the numbers can, can shift. And all of a sudden there's more restrictions and protocols and things that you need to implement, um, for, you know, players and everyone's safety. So, you know, just trying to navigate navigate that as best we can and communicate with our players as best we can. Just, um, you know, kind of the changes that are that are happening, um, although we hope temporary, but are happening and um, just be prepared for to make the best of, you know, the hand we're dealt with what the falls looks like and that sort of thing. Um, we start a little bit later than all the other schools. Uh, we don't start until September, Monday, September 7th here. So, it gives us a little bit more time to kind of see other schools and how, you know, when they do come back, you know, how it goes for them and some things that they do well and help them and kind of learn from them. So hopefully it'll be all positive and, and moving forward. Um, but that's really it. I mean, you know, it's a lot more virtual recruiting with watching, watching streamed games and virtual visits um, and calls and that sort of thing with players. Um, you know, and, but the, and then the usual stuff with, you know, your guys um, this summer, guys were in summer ball and then their team would get, their season would get canceled. You have to put them on another team that season would get canceled and then put them onto another team, you know, just trying to help really the position players find at bats. Um, you know, it's, it's been priority for us. And then we've been fortunate this year, and this was planned pre COVID that we had as many as 18 of our pitchers training at premier pitching performance uh, or p3 up in st louis missouri for the last 10 weeks of the summer um, so they were going up there anyways um, but then when this all happened and summer leagues got canceled it actually i think it really benefited us to have uh, a you know a first class state-of-the-art facility for our pitchers to you know to really train and program and um, everything from you know pitch design and 3d motion capture and and you know, they have a weight room and all that stuff and obviously a place to throw and mound. So, um, you know, hopefully that'll pay off for us in terms of our pitching staff being ready when they come back this fall. That That's a, an interesting note here that, you know, your pitchers were already planning not, not to play summer ball this year, that they, they were able to, uh, you know, have this other training facility but in a world where you're not playing games this summer, whether that's, you know, by your staff's design or because of the pandemic, uh, you know, it's not easy to, you know, get development. But, but because you guys had that arrangement set up, uh, they were able to get some of that. What, what are you looking for in terms of what they're able to, uh, to do over the summer uh, at, at a facility um, you know, where they're able to, to get the tech, get, get the weight training. What, what, what kind of are, are your goals for your pitchers when you send them there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, for us, I just think over the years, one thing I've, I've observed generally um, is that for whatever reason, most pitchers with a regular season that's not shortened by COVID 
and then when they, you know, they have a pretty heavy workload and then they go pitch summer ball, you know, a lot of guys in the past have been shut down from pitching in the fall. So when you have your guys back on campus, you can't even work with some of your best pitchers because they've had such a heavy workload. Um, you know, and then, uh, and then other pitchers that are, you know, having, you know, maybe a light spring load and then a heavy workload in the summer, but they still need to compete because they're, they're not where they, you, you know, they're not where they want to be on the depth chart. Um, you know, by the time they come back from summer ball, they're, you know, they're usually five to 10 pounds lighter. Um, you know, they're a little bit, they're, they're kind of in a fatigue state. Um, some, you know, there's some summer ball uh, towns and places and teams, they have, you know, really great weight rooms and um, food options and that sort of thing. But what I found is that there's also some that don't. So, you know, that can really hinder a player's development. So I guess to get back to your question, I would say the mind, the, the thought process was, well, let's, let's have all of our pitchers try to see if they can gain five to 10 pounds over the summer, get stronger, you know, have access to kitchens and good food, um, you know, being around, be, still being around their teammates from a camaraderie and competitive standpoint, um, you know, and then they're, they're training at P3. So they're around, you know, like I said, 3D motion capture, high-speed cameras, Rapsodo, you know, and they're all watching each other throw and that sort of thing. So they're kind of getting an education on some of the newer methods and pitching, you know, whether it be pitch design or whatever it may be. Um, you know, so they're getting a, kind of a 10-week course on that. So now we're hopefully, you know, their goal is to come back with either a new pitch or an improved pitch um, or certainly all of their pitches, you know, if they're, if they're coming back um, stronger and heavier. We think that they, you know, their their stuff is more likely to take a jump than versus coming here in the fall in a fatigue state. So that's kind of the that's kind of the goal with the with our pitchers, really. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about on the hitting side with with the pitchers. Obviously, you're you're kind of able to to, to kind of send them all off as a, as a group. But what's the approach of the hitters? Are they kind of spread out? Otherwise, what are the goals there? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, more traditional with the hitters. Um, I mean, especially in a COVID-shortened season, we, you know, just really try to get them in the highest level of, of baseball as they can and let them play, let them get reps, let them get at bats um, as much as possible. So, um, you know, and then obviously in towns that have, you know, good facilities and, and good places for them to train. But um, but more more of a traditional setup, I think, with the hitters. I don't I don't think that shifts too much with, with that, but um, – so yeah, and there, you know, so in this day and age, you know, this summer it was just all about finding a team that was playing. You know, in the summer, previous summers, it's about, you know, there's tons of different leagues and tons of different options, and you know, you can go to the Northwoods and play 70 games and get a ton of at bats, or you can go to the Coastal Plains League and get less at bats but be closer to home. You know, this summer it was just like if there was a team that we could get our guys on. We want to get them on there. Our position players, we want to get them on there and play. So. You um you played on the Cape. You coached on the Cape. Yep. Is uh, it, how how has your summer philosophy been? You know, shaped by that experience and and other experiences that you've had around summer ball. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I pitched for three summers up in Chatham and once, and I coached one summer in Orleans. So I've been kind of on both sides of that rivalry. And, and to me, I mean, the, the Cape's the best of the best. And um, I think any, any player in the country that has an opportunity to go play in Cape Cod, pitcher or hitter, needs to do that. I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I was fortunate to get up there 
for four summers of my life and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And, you know, so that, I mean, no matter what, that's always going to be a priority is, is if, if, you know, our, our players can go play in that prestigious league, then we want to try it. We want to give them that opportunity. Um, and it's no knock really on the other, on the other leagues. It's just, you know, it's just sort of, um, you know, I, I just think the Cape's different and, um, you know, and just in this day and age where, you know, you see major league baseball and minor league baseball putting such an emphasis on development and college baseball, such an emphasis on develop development. You know, I think, I think one thing that, you know, if I think if there was a way for summer teams to really prioritize, you know, improving like the gen, like the, like the weight room and the, and the, and the food and you know, opportunities for some of these guys, you know, cause I just remember, I, I mean, when I, this is way back when in 2004 or five and six, you know, I mean, I was playing in, in Chatham and the way there really wasn't a whole lot of weight rooms up there, you know, and I can look at myself, I can look, go back and look at pictures of myself and be like, you know, I wish, I wish the gym, you know, I wish there had been more of a gym opportunity, um, you know, there, but it just, you know, some of these towns, there's just not, they're not, not always available, um, you know, for, for one reason or another. So, um, yeah, I mean, to me, the, the Cape's the last big, best league, and anytime there's an opportunity for guys to play there, you know, we, we want our guys to play there. Our uh, J.J. Cooper spent a little time with you and your staff before the season, and for the listeners out there, I would highly recommend going back and, and reading what J.J. wrote about about that experience. But Yeah, um, J.J. great. That was, that was that was fun. That was a fun day here on campus. Yeah, yeah, he really enjoyed it as well. He he, he raved about it quite a bit. Um, but I'm curious about player development. So in college baseball, a, a lot of programs are singing from the same book now, which is great because that's good for the player. Yep. But um, from a competitive standpoint, the margins, at least in my opinion, you can tell me if I'm wrong, are thinning a little bit. Where because everyone is a little bit on the same path here, how do you think about that, and how do you? think about making sure that you guys are doing it a little bit better or a little bit different and being able to maintain at least some sort of competitive advantage in a world where the reality of the situation is, you know, you guys aren't going to have the budget of an SEC program. That's just kind of the reality of the situation. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, like, um, you know, you have, you have to have, you have to have great players, not only physically, but just, you know, their makeup and, and their work ethic and everything that comes with it. So, you know, I, I think a team, I think a team with a program with great players, you know, that are well-rounded and doing the right things and working hard and, you know, there's their talents really high. I mean, those programs are going to succeed, I believe with, with or without, you know, being at the front end of player development, you know, for us, we just want to, we, we try to approach player development that, you know, what is, what are we capable of doing? and and let's try to do it right like if um you know they're like what are the low-hanging fruits whether it's you know rapsodo or driveline materials or high-speed cameras axe bats um blast motion sensors um synergy whatever it may be um just adding tvs into our indoor so that we have more visuals for our guys to coach themselves you know, what are the low hanging fruits that we can, can, can do, and let's not really focus on the things that we can't do or we don't have, you know, let's, let's have goals to go get those things eventually. Um, but let's, let's, let's make the most of what we have and, and just 
you know, try to do, try to do those things. Well, I think that that's for us is really important. Um, and we want our guys to know that, you know, and really feel that every time they show up the field that they have the tools necessary to, to, to prepare, to compete and, and to improve their game to the highest level. So, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there's all, there's all, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've, I've coached in the ACC, I've coached in Conference USA, I've coached in the CAA. It, it really, which are all, all three great leagues. And, you know, it, no matter where you are, there's always limitations. There's always, there's always something you don't have that you want have, you, you want to have, or some obstacle, you know, you just, to me, it's all about the mindset of, you know, what are we capable of doing and let's, and let's do that. Let's do that. Those things we are capable of the best of our ability as a program. You've now been in this job for a little more than a year. What, what have you learned? Uh, you know, I guess just about being a head coach, but, but also about your team uh, in that time. Um, you know, I think, <laughs> I don't know how long we have in this podcast. I've learned, I've learned so much in the last year. Um, and I'm very fortunate to, you know, have such, you know, such a committed athlete, athletic department here with Mike Hill, our athletic director, um, Darren Spees, um, our sport administrator and everything. Just the support from the top down, you know, for me is crucial um, anywhere. I think any coach in America would, would attest to that. And we're, so we're really fortunate, you know, when, when there's, there's things that we need or things that we feel like we are capable of, you know, they, they, they want to say yes and they want to help. So, um, you know, we've had that this past year, um, but, you know, I mean, in terms of our players, I, I think there's times as coaches where we might not give our players enough credit. I, I mean, our, our players are, I mean, they are, they're all over social media. They're reading, you know, they're reading information. They're watching videos constantly, you know, of what's being put out there, whether it's, you know, Trevor Bauer's, you know, video log or video blog, um, you know, where he's showing behind the scenes stuff and how he trains and how he goes about you know, his work, you know, so I think as coaches, like, it's important for us to once try to stay up to speed or obviously ahead, um, but to understand that, like, you know, our players are just as capable of, of, you know, once they, once they're, you know, they're taught kind of the, you know, how to use technology or how to use some modern trading methods, like, they can grasp these things pretty quickly, and it doesn't need to be a 15-page post-game report. It can be a one-game, one-page report of things you really value, and they can really process these things and apply them to their games. So, you know, for me, I, I think giving your players more, more credit than, than maybe sometimes we do as coaches, you know, I think some coaches are afraid of message overload. Well, you know, I think it, it's important to try to, you know, give your players as much information as possible and then decide when to reel it back versus not give them enough. We've had several coaches in the podcast this off season who were in their first seasons in 2020 and, as I start this question, Teddy probably knows where I'm going because I've asked it to, to all of them and perhaps he's rolling his eyes there. But um, <laughs> I'm curious how you would approach your year two, given that year one was so short and was cut off early. Because I, I could just imagine it would be a little bit difficult to make year two actually feel like a year two as opposed to just like a two-year long version of year one. But as you're building a program, obviously, you don't want to be stuck back in year one. You kind of want to advance. But that seems like it would be a little bit harder to do, given the circumstances. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And how you describe it, you know, it, it, it certainly at times feels that way. And you have to you have to push to resist 
that, you know, I mean, I, I would imagine that the other first year head coaches you've spoken with, um, are, uh, you know, I'd like to see their to-do lists, you know, I mean, my to-do list is pretty long, so it's hard for, it's, you know, there's, there's days where there's one really important to item that, I, that, you know, if we can just get this one thing done, then that is big for the program, you know, but sometimes, and then there's some days where you have to do 20 to 30 little things, you know, and get those things checked off. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think as long as you, you, you're maintaining a to-do list um, of short and long-term things to accomplish as a program, then, you know, I think you're, you know, the likelihood of you becoming stagnant or, or stuck, you know, back in year one is, it's going to be difficult because you're always, you know, trying to check off new boxes. So, you know, that's probably something I would say is, is something that all the coach, all the first year head coaches that you've probably spoken with, we can probably all relate to is that our to-do lists are all very long and, um, you know, and it just, and and they and it covers a wide wide range of things. I mean, everything from I mean, we're designing uniforms because we just have, like we just we have a um, a total rebrand of our athletic department with all new logos and everything. So, you know, we're getting six sets of uniforms. So we want to design our uniforms, you know, how we want them to look. And you know, we're you know we're design we're, we're putting new graphics all over our stadium and our locker room and stuff like that. So, you know, it's really hard. It, it, it's really hard to really kind of have, I don't have too many times where I, I come in and I feel like we're kind of stuck in year one. It, it feels like we're, it feels like we're, we, we've, we've embraced momentum here for sure. What is it that attracted you to this job? You know, you're one of the younger coaches in division one. You were, you know, an assistant coach at, at North Carolina. There, there seemingly was no reason for you to, to jump into a job that, that you didn't really want. Uh, so what is it uh, about this one that, that made you, uh, you know, go out and, and, and take it last summer? I grew up, I grew up here, you know, my parent, my parents lived 25 minutes away from our stadium here on campus. So uh, it's not every day. I don't think that you get to coach college baseball in your, in your hometown. And, um, you know, I know, I mean, you look at what coach Hib, coach Hibbs was here for 27 years. You know, I mean, I think when you when you look at any job in any profession, you know, I would say look at, you know, where was the previous, you know, what did the previous person in your position do? Was he successful? Did he, did he have a good experience? Did he, he respect it? And, you know, everybody respects Coach Hibbs tremendously, and he was here for 27 years. So, you know, I felt like I felt like the opportunity to, you know, continue what he had done, you know, and even try to escalate things to, to new heights. I felt like it was, I felt like it was, it's very possible here, I guess. Um, you know, I've grown up, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, you know, I, I got a new coach Hibbs as a young player in middle school and high school and, and the program here. And I followed all those teams that were really talented in the late, the late nineties. And then, you know, the two thousands when I was a player, um, you know, and then, and then the good team since, and, you know, it's Charlotte, North Carolina. We have one of the biggest airports in the country. And I think I read somewhere that like 70% of the United States can fly to Charlotte, North Carolina in under three hours. So, 
you know, it's very, it's very, very accessible. I mean, you're going to see it in our recruiting class. I mean, we've got a big recruiting class coming in and they're from all over the country. And that's a, that's just, it's a credit to, you know, our location, but it's also credit to once players come here and they see, they see this campus and they see our facilities and they're, they meet the people that are here, part of our program and, and this athletic department. You know, and then we go uptown on their visit and they see the skyline and they see the city and they feel the connection between the campus and the city. You know, to me, this job last summer was a no brainer. I mean, it was, it was a no brainer. I didn't, you know, I interviewed, I didn't, didn't know how much the job paid. I didn't know how many years the contract were. I didn't, I didn't even know the balance of the, you know, the roster of the 11.7. None of that really mattered to me. I mean, it was, you know, coming here was much bigger than all of that. So, you know, for me, for me, I, I, I really do have a dream job coaching in my hometown city. One of the um, best stories of the major league season so far has been the return of Daniel Bard, a classmate of yours at UNC. Um, yep. What has that been like for those, um, for those, I guess, who don't know, Daniel Bard was a big leaguer and then struggled with control issues and by his own admission, the yips, and then has kind of battled his way back and is now a big leaguer again. So, uh, Coach, what, what has that been like, um, watching that progress, knowing the struggles he's had and be able to get back to the mountaintop? Just really, really proud. You know, really proud of my, my really good friend who, um, I mean, it's a one-of-a-kind story. You know, like there's nobody – there's nobody that's doing what he's, you know, that's done what he's doing. And um, to our close circle of friends, um, it's not, it's not really a surprise because I mean, even like three years ago when he was kind of making another comeback, I never saw him throw a fastball under 94. So it's like, I've never seen Daniel Barr throw a fastball under 94 in my life. And that's like, I mean, he can wake up and get out, he can get out of bed, you know, show up to the field, not even stretch his arm, get on a mound and throw a ball at 94, 95 without even doing anything. Like it's, it's just crazy. Um, you know, but on top of the natural talent, I mean, he's worked extremely hard to keep his body and, and, you know, as mobile as it is and, and as strong as it is. And, um, you know, and now, now everybody's, you know, kind of getting to see him put it all together and just show that, show everybody in baseball that, really anything is possible and, and, um, you know, you can come back from anything and, and, um, you just have to try and you just have to believe. And, you know, it's just really fun to watch. I think, I think he's going to stay up there for a few more years and, um, you know, I just, just really proud of my good friend. Cause you know, it's, it certainly has not been easy for him the last seven years or so. Staying on a UNC theme here, um, you know, we got news as we record this today on the 7th that uh, Mike Fox, your coach at, at UNC, uh, is retiring after 22 seasons there. Uh, you played for him. You coached with him. Just what has Mike Fox uh, meant to you and your baseball life? And, and you know, just what, what are your thoughts on him uh, reaching, you know, retirement? Yeah, I mean, I'm just – I mean, Mike Fox changed my life. And uh, as a senior in high school, he offered me a thousand dollar scholarship to go play baseball at, you know, my parents' alma mater. Um, honestly, you know, I think I went to camp there so many times. I think he just kind of gave me my camp refund, 
you know, to, to go play there. Um, but he, you know, he deserves this. He, he really deserves this. He did it. He's done it the right way from day one. He did it the right way at North Carolina Wesleyan. And then when he got hired in 1998 for the last 22 years, he has done it. He has done everything the right way from, um, you know, just how to compete, how to develop players, how to develop men off the field. You know, he's a great husband. He's a great father. Um, he's just class. I mean, he's a cutthroat competitor between the lines, but he, he, he carries himself with class and grace, like really no other coach I've been around. And I'm just very, very thankful that, um, you know, I've coached for 10 years now in college baseball and five of them have been sitting next to him in the dugout and um, all four of my years as a player. So not, you know, I've gotten nine years of experience, you know, being around coach Fox on a, in, on a daily basis and having a front row seat of what the best of the best in college baseball looks like, you know, he's just so, so consistent, you know, the excellence is just so consistent. Um, but I'm just, so in saying all that, I'm just, uh, there's, it's, I'm sure it's a very small percentage of coaches that really they get to choose when they walk away. And, you know, he, he told me last night, he called me last night and he said, Woody, I haven't worn a watch in three weeks. <laughs> and I just said, well, I said, well, good for you coach. And, uh, you know, he deserves that. So, um, you know, and then obviously my best friend, Scott Forbes being named the new head coach there is, uh, Again, it just it just shows you that um, the game knows, and good things happen to good people. And uh, I, I think my alma mater um, is in tremendous hands, really the best hands with Scott Forbes. Well, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how the the program progresses there. But I'm also very curious to see how how the Niners progress and, and, you know, 2021 feels like a long time away and a lot of uncertainty still surrounding that. But what, uh, what are you looking forward to as, as you look at the, the next season uh, in, in Charlotte baseball? Well, you know, we haven't announced our schedule, but we have a great schedule, um, you know, without going into too much detail. I mean, we're going to play 35 home games here. Um, love our ballpark. We have a tremendous relationship with the Charlotte Knights uptown. So we're actually in the works right now. We're getting pretty close to announcing, uh, having, you know, the game, we're going to play some games up, uh, up in their ballpark, which in my opinion is the nice minor league ballpark in the country. Um, you know, so we're going to, we're going to play a really great schedule here. And then we've got a, we've got a, um, a really exciting recruiting class coming in that um, Toby Bicknell, our recruiting coordinator and, Bo Robinson, our associate head coach, have really spearheaded, you know, and, and been the architects of of bringing this class in. It, we're excited about it. It's it's versatile. It's um, you know, it, it's it, it comes from you know high school, um, but also heavy junior college. And we've got some four-year transfers that are immediately eligible. So. You know, we're just excited. You know, to, to combine to combine them with the players that are coming back, who are really talented and and really bought into everything we're doing. I just it just feels like it's a really exciting time, um, you know, for Niner baseball and going into 2021. Outstanding. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing that and uh, see see what you guys have uh, cooking up out there 
Uh, certainly an exciting time in the program, what with the rebrand that you mentioned and uh, all those new uniforms and the big recruiting class and you know, just a lot of new uh, in, in Charlotte and you know, specifically within the, the baseball program, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's it's and it starts it starts with Mike Hill, our athletic director, who who leads that that energy, and um, it just kind of spreads, um, you know, throughout. I mean, I'm I'm one of I'm one of six head coaches, maybe seven, that have been hired. I think in the last two years here, um, you know, with Coach Healy leading the football program to a bowl game, Ron Sanchez. I mean, that, dang it, I thought they were going to win the Conference USA basketball tournament um, right before COVID hit. Um, he was the recruiting coordinator at Virginia that um, recruited the national title basketball team. So, you know, there's just a lot of, there's a ton of energy here in the athletic department and momentum. And, um, you know, you, you feel it each and every day when we, when we come in the offices. So it's a good, it's a, it's a special place for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, coach, to, to break down all of that for you. Uh, it was, it was great talking with you here on the baseball America college podcast. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks Joe. And thanks Teddy for having me. And, um, you know, looking forward to seeing you guys out here, um, this fall, hopefully under more, more normal circumstances, hopefully for scrimmages and then certainly next spring. Appreciate all you guys do for the game. Thank you again to Charlotte head coach Robert Woodard for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, I, I wanted to bring on uh, Coach Woodard in part to, or in large part, to, to talk about some of this player development stuff because the, the piece that he's talking about with the pitchers going to P3 um, you know, kind of caught my attention when, when he mentioned that on Twitter uh, this week. And, you know, it, it's... Uh, Summer ball is is obviously a, a different scenario this year, uh, but hearing him talk about how they had planned to send all of their pitchers there uh, makes it even more interesting because we have seen in recent years kind of the growth of, uh, you know, the, the these alternate summer plans where you can go, uh, you don't have to play games to develop. You can go and you can train and you can, you know, get stronger and, and use various tech to, to work on specific pitches or your delivery or whatever. And, uh, you know, from a pitching standpoint, it really seems like that's kind of a, a growing trend, uh, becoming just become, a thing that's becoming more popular around college baseball. And, and you see the, the success that some of those guys have. And, and uh, you know, you, you hear uh, Coach Woodard explain it. And, you know, it, it certainly, uh, you know, doesn't, I, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And, um, you know, so as, as we consider what player development looks like in the summer, um, you know, especially when, when we talk about the potential of, uh, of the new model uh, in college baseball, you know, th- these are all very interesting things to, to think about. And, and I, I appreciate him sharing his perspective with us, with us here. Yeah, it was really interesting stuff. And I think that that choice they made is, and the fact that that choice was available, I think, is reflective of where player development is, even at the college level, because these options just weren't available not so long ago. There was a time when it was kind of summer ball or nothing. And of course, that's an oversimplification, but that's largely what it was, was you, you went to summer ball or you could, you know, if you're rehabbing an injury, that was a little different or what have you. And then I think more and more you started to hear players say, well, I, I kind of, I stayed on campus and I lifted weights or I stayed on campus and I worked on my conditioning or, 
uh, what have you, or did some, you know, just one-on-one instruction. You started to hear that. And now to your point, I think you're hearing more, more and more examples of players or groups of players going off to specific training camps, if you will, kind of like what Charlotte did to train this way. Bryce Jarvis famously at Duke did so uh, before last season. And, and you saw the fruits of, of that labor. So um, I, I do think this is going to be more and more common thing as time goes on. Now there are a finite number of places where that kind of thing can be done. Uh, certainly it'd be easier in a non pandemic year to, to, to pull this kind of thing off, you know, send a big group of your players off and um, feel comfortable with that. Um, but I, I do think it continues to be a thing that, that, that we see. Uh, and there, I think there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, some is the, I think there are a lot of ways in which doing something like that can give a coach a piece, a little bit of peace of mind. Uh, Cause you are seeding a lot of control in summer ball. And that's part of the reason why the coaches that coaches trust get the players they do. I mean, guys like, I mean, you saw with Tom holiday, the players he got in Tulsa. And I think a lot of that is because he's Tom holiday and, you know, Bill Pintard and the West coast with the Santa Barbara foresters is uh, this guy that coaches trust to take care of their players and do right by their players. And, um, so outside of those, though, there, there is a little bit of sometimes a little bit of mystery with summer ball and kind of what you're going to get. And, and, and the goals for your player might not jive with the goals of the rest of the team or the coach or any, you know, things like that. So I think it's an opportunity for a lot of coaches to be able to have a little more um, uh, direct input on exactly what the guys are working on, uh, the goals they have, the, the inputs and the output. They're kind of aware of that as it's happening. Summer ball is a little more ephemeral, if you will. And there's still value in that. I'm not suggesting there's not, I think. And, and even Coach Woodard, you know, they've got hitters out in summer ball. And, and he mentioned it, too, that they're just different goals. And for some guys, it might be to go out there and compete more. And so that, that's a situation where you, you send a guy to summer ball because you want him to face live hitters in game situations that can't really be replicated in a, in a warehouse or on a training mound. Um, so there are opportunities in summer ball. I still think I'm not suggesting this is a doomsday type thing for, for summer ball, although perhaps the new model is, is, is that maybe, but that's a discussion for a different day. But um, so, yeah, I thought, I thought it's really interesting. I, you know, I, I love, I'm a fan of just in general, a fan of outside the box ideas. And so I really was intrigued by this and I could have probably asked him 30 minutes more of questions about the logistics of that, you know, and, and the discussions that he had with his players about that and, are the players all living together? Are they, you know, are they doing host families? But I just, there's a lot of like logistical questions that are interesting, even beyond the COVID piece of it. But uh, we just didn't have time for all of that. So yeah, interesting stuff. And I think, um, you know, he's really, and I think this is part of what JJ wrote in that story that I alluded to in the interview is that, you know, he's really kind of sped up Charlotte quite a bit in a short amount of time there in terms of bringing in tech, bringing in new player development methods. And I think this kind of just falls in line with what he's doing there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if you read JJ's story, like you'll you'll see P3 referenced, like they have kind of a long-standing relationship, I guess, at this point. Um, but but between you know them and and and, and the, the program, it is, you know, he, he mentioned that he would like to see more summer teams kind of go in on like weight rooms and, and that kind of developmental piece of it. And you know, I, I think that's something that you hear fairly commonly if you talk to college people, like what what they would hope that summer ball could add or what they could add, what summer ball could add that could, you know, lead them to um, giving more players 
you know, you're keeping them out longer in the summer, sending them out or, or what, whatever. Uh, just the, the infrastructure that they have on campus is so much greater than what uh, you have at a lot of summer uh, s- summer ball locations. And, you know, that that's, uh, it, it's just such a big part of player development in 2020 that, you know, that that's something that they're, they're looking for and, and that, you know, could be kind of a, uh, you know, competitive advantage if you could get, um, you know, that kind of thing going in your summer league. Uh, you know, I, I know some summer ball places are, you know, well aware of that and, and working on that. And, um, you know, it's never going to be as good as what they have on campus. Those facilities cost an awful lot of money uh, for a reason, but the, uh, any improvement in that I think would be welcomed by a lot of people uh, within college baseball. Um, so yeah, that's something to, that, that's another trend to watch as, as we go forward is, especially in terms of pitchers, how are they using the summer to develop? Are they doing it on campus? Are colleges finding creative ways like Charlotte uh, is doing to, uh, to, to bring development uh, to the summer or, you know, does summer ball, you know, kind of swing back and, and find a way to, uh, to recapture, you know, some of the, the players that they're currently losing, um, you know, to, staying on campus or, or, or to these other private facilities. I think it's also Woodard making the decision to do this. I think part of the reason I, let me say, phrase it this way. Part of the reason I asked the question to him about how do you, it's more or less just how do you stay ahead in development? Because look, Charlotte is never, Charlotte has, um, has what they need from a player development standpoint. To your point, they are way ahead of a lot of schools in a similar, in a similar place in the, in the college baseball hierarchy. Um, but it is always kind of a game of, 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 of catch up a little bit. And a lot of schools are kind of looking at things the same way now in terms of player development. There are a lot fewer schools that are kind of in the, in the stone ages in terms of using some of this new technology and the new player development methods, which is not by the way, to say that's the only way to do it in the sport, but more and more going that way. But the fact that, you know, he's kind of appears to be on the leading edge a little bit of doing this with the summer. Um, it, it to me suggests that Charlotte's in a good position and has a guy in charge who is going to really spend a lot of time thinking ahead to what's next as opposed to really being stuck on what they're doing right now. And I think that bodes well for Charlotte and we don't have to do the Charlotte deep dive right now just because I, you know, I'm certainly not prepared for that discussion. And, but just on its face, you know, Charlotte is a program within Conference USA um, that I think has a lot of things going for it and should be more of a have versus a have not within the league. And um, I think they're in a position now with some of the advancements they've made. Um, the facility is good. Obviously you're in a great location. He referenced some of that. I think they're in a really, really good position, even setting aside hiring Robert Woodard, but to bring in someone like Robert Woodard, who I think is thinking about the right things when it comes to how do I get my program from where they are to that next level. And he's, uh, he, he's thinking about those kinds of things without do it, without being unrealistic about it, without being hyperbolic about it. He's not out here talking about, you know, project Omaha 2024 or something like that. I mean, he, he seems to really have his mind wrapped around like the kind of incremental improvements they need to make to get where they want. And I think that's all really good news for the program. 
Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I would echo uh, that we're not going to deep dive Charlotte in part because he referenced their large new recruiting class. Uh, and I think that's going to be a large part of the story for Charlotte going forward, that if you look at their roster last year, they were pretty old. And yes, seniors can come back. But, uh, you know, that they, they have had a fair amount of uh, there's going to be a fair amount of new uh, when you go look at Charlotte next year. And, um, you know, that they have some exciting players, uh, you know, that out there for them. Uh, but I, I think, like he said, like a, a lot of the excitement is about what's coming in. And this isn't to say that, again, that, that Char- Charlotte was a, a, a solid team, um, but they, uh, if they're going to be upgrading over the, the, the summer with this uh, 2020 recruiting class, um, you know, it, it's going to be exciting to see what that looks like uh, when it all comes together for them. So definitely kind of a program on the rise, especially within the context of Conference USA. And uh, I would definitely agree that they should be uh, much more of a have when you look at them. Uh, you know, there's no reason why they can't be you know, where Southern Miss and Louisiana Tech and FAU and, uh, you know, Rice, why they, why Charlotte can't be on that level, I would say. Also helpful, um, he mentioned new uniforms. And uh, look, I'm not uh, a sartorial guy. Um, I am, you know, colorblind. And also, uh, as my fiance would tell you, dress horribly. However, I can have occasional opinions on um, baseball uniforms and what they've been working with, not not great in my opinion. Uh, so I'm looking forward to rebranded uniforms because I think that'll be a positive change as well. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see what they come up with there. Six new uniforms. It's a lot. We'll, uh, we'll see what it, it looks like. Yeah, <laughs> just a little generic. It's not that, it's not that any, it was anything super garish they were working with. It's just pretty generic, you know, which sometimes that's, that's great. But I, I think they, uh, they could use a little fresh coat of paint, if you will. All right, so let's get to the last bit of news we wanted to get to here today, and that is a big piece uh, with Mike Fox uh, announcing his retirement in North Carolina, uh, picking Scott Forbes as his successor. Neither are surprises if you look in the long term, uh, but in the immediate, you know, I certainly did not wake up on Friday expecting that, and you know, it being August, it wasn't really something that was particularly on my radar uh, as, as a thing that might happen imminently or even this year. Uh, it, it is uh, a, a massive retirement in the sport. Mike Fox ranks seventh on the all-time wins list. Um, he, he really made North Carolina into a national power. And Scott Forbes now, who has kind of been the apparent the, the heir apparent for I don't know five six years at least I would say probably uh, he, uh, he he'll get his chance uh, starting with that 2021 season so Joe like let's let's start with Mike Fox's impact and just kind of general profile when when you consider what he has done at North Carolina um, certainly one of, one of the greats within college baseball no doubt about it. Um, I think when you, when you think of North Carolina as a power program, you have Mike Fox to thank for that. Uh, they were a good program before 
This is certainly no disrespect to, to Mike Roberts, the coach before Mike Fox, the father of big leader Brian Roberts. Um, he did a really nice job there for, for 20 years, but Mike Fox took it to another level. Um, certainly with that run they had, you know, in um, 2006, 2009, four straight Omaha appearances, um, heck of a run there, came up just short on national titles. I know that's, that's probably something that, you know, people around the program have lost a little bit of sleep over through the years, but, um, but yeah, he's, he's the catalyst behind North Carolina becoming what we know North Carolina baseball to be now. And, and I, you know, I was not quite as plugged in on college baseball yet when he, you know, certainly when he first took the job, I was not really paying a ton of attention, but up until that run they had from, from 2006, 2009, you know, there was kind of just a general feeling around North Carolina that this was also around the time they were building the new Bosch and Boschmer stadium. And so um, there was kind of just a thought that this program is really about to pop. And sure enough, it did. Um, because before that, there was a little bit of a feeling of, yeah, they just hadn't quite gotten over the hump, maybe a little underachieving, you know, they, they should maybe be a little more than they are. And then boom, there it was. And they stayed fairly consistent. They've had some, they have had some ups and downs in, in recent years. They are not immune from having the occasional season where they kind of fall flat, but on the whole, they've been incredibly, incredibly consistent. Uh, a number of College World Series appearances. Let's see if I'm counting here. That's seven since 2006. Um, that is one heck of a run. So um, a well-deserved retirement for sure um, for turning the North Carolina program into what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. He, uh, he only missed the tournament three times as North Carolina's head coach. Um, one of those times definitely stains North Carolina uh, as they were probably the last team out. Um, probably not something you want to bring up with people around the program too much. Uh, but yeah, they uh, incredibly consistent under him. Uh, you know, Fox took UNC to four straight college world series, uh, five and six years. No ACC team had been four straight years before UNC did it. Uh, the two, uh, College World Series finals appearances are within that four-year run, uh, losing both times to Oregon State. Again, just a, a real tough, uh, you know, unable, just unable to get over the hump there. Uh, but North Carolina became one of the ACC's premier programs under Mike Fox. They're one of the few programs that, like, truly recruits nationally. Uh, they have a gem of a stadium. Uh, it, it's just a, a really, really strong program that, that is, you know, that, that he's built there. And, um, you know, yeah, they, they had a pretty good program before he showed up, but, you know, it's, it's definitely fair to say he took them to another level. Um, and now it's going to be Scott Forbes's job to maintain that. Forbes, uh, like I mentioned, 19 years on Fox's staff. He's done just about anything you could do. He's been their recruiting coordinator. He's been their hitting coach. He's been their pitching coach. Uh, you know, he's really had a hand in, in shaping these teams. He's coached third base. Like he's almost literally done everything, I think. And, you know, that's going to serve him well. Um, Fox has a pretty solid coaching tree. Uh, Chad Holbrook, Scott Jackson, Robert Woodard, all former assistants who've gone on to become head coaches. Now, now Forbes joins that list and, and he gets the, uh, the, the job there in Chapel Hill. I think he'll, I, I think he has everything he needs to be successful. Um, you know, I, I, he's a really well-respected coach. He could have been a head coach elsewhere. 
uh, by now. If he had chosen to leave, he was in the running for the pit job uh, a couple of years ago when Mike Bell got it. Forbes pulled his name out. I don't know that Forbes was going to get the job if he had stayed in, but um, you know he's been he's been mooted as a, a potential ACC head coach before, and uh, now he's going to get that opportunity in Chapel Hill. And um, I'm going to be interested to see what he does with it. I don't see any reason why North Carolina has to take a step back under Forbes. Obviously, losing a coach like Mike Fox is is hugely significant, and Forbes is a first-time head coach, so I hope he has some growing pains to go through, uh, no doubt. But it's uh, it's a program that's well set up to succeed, and I, I think Forbes is uh, you know, he's he's one hundred percent earned the opportunity uh, to be the the successor to Mike Fox here. I think it actually says something because you're right that like pound for pound, it's a really good coaching tree, and I think it actually says something that it's not bigger. Because, you know, he's had a lot of the same assistants. It's been a pretty static group um, for a long, long time, which is great for the program, obviously. You get that continuity. Uh, and it, it created a guy like Forbes, who was kind of an obvious successor by the time it was all said and done. But um, that coaching tree in, in, in a lot of places would be bigger by now. But the coaches have, have stuck with the program, have stuck with Mike Fox. And I think that speaks volumes about, about him and the program and what they've created there that, um, guys aren't looking to necessarily jump ship. You know, guys aren't, aren't jumping at any opportunity. They're waiting for the right opportunities. And for a lot of his coaches, that right opportunity has come along. Um, but it has been a group that's, that's been pretty tenured. So I think there's, there's something to be said about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a talented coaching staff. I mean, there's a reason why North Carolina is as successful as it is. And a lot of that has to do with, with that staff and, and what they can do for players. And um, so, yeah, Mike Fox, definitely one of the, the college baseball greats. I mean, just again, seventh all time in, in career wins and um, really, really impressive run uh, in Chapel Hill. I guess like Mike Martin, you can say that, the resume is missing the the national title, and, and that is a disappointment, uh, I am sure. But I, I think Mike Fox is is going to look uh, on the balance and, and be uh, very happy with uh, with how his career went. Uh, just being able to to coach at his alma mater, uh, you know, produce the results they produced, and and produce uh, a lot of talent. Um, you know, it, when. I, and I'm sure that they would talk about the quality of their players as well as as humans. Uh, and I'll let them speak to that more than more than me. They they would know uh, better than I. But but from what I can tell, you know, I mean, there's it's it's a well-run program from from top to bottom. Isn't it amazing? A little bit too. We we talk about the lack of a national title, and 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 obviously that's something we have to talk about. Like that's our job to kind of put these these coaches kind of in categories and 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 kind of unofficially rank them and put them in a hierarchy. But isn't it kind of amazing? that, you know, during their careers, they might talk a little bit about it. And Mike Martin kind of famously said he let it go, you know, about a decade prior to retirement or whatever it was. And I, I assume Mike Fox got to that point at some point in his career as well. But it's kind of amazing that these coaches, when they get, and it seems genuine, by the way, but these coaches, when they get to retirement and they get to a point where they're just ready, and if you read the release that, you know, you quoted a little bit in your story and, and folks can go online and read it. But the statement he gave, which just kind of talked about how he, he's had a chance to like slow down and see what life would be like once he's, once he was done and he kind of liked it in a lot of ways. And I think Mike Martin was, was very much, Mike Martin was very much in that kind of place as well. 
um, in his life and was ready to kind of do something else with his next chapter. And it's, it's kind of amazing to me that we spend a lot of time discussing it. And at some points, maybe it's been a topic of conversation for them as well. But by the time you're ready to go and you're ready to move on to the other chapter, it kind of, that stuff kind of seems to melt away. And I think that that's kind of like an important just general life lesson that when you're hanging them up, like that stuff tends to kind of fade away and you're more focused on the good you see in what you've done, whether it's through your players or through your coaches or what you've built. And then you're just kind of looking forward to being a husband again or being a dad again or, or whatever it is. Um, I, you know, I think there's probably something to be, to be learned from that because it, it struck me how often you see that with coaches that maybe fell a little bit short time and time again and how at peace they just kind of seem with that by the time it's all said and done. I've talked to a lot of people close to Mike Martin over the last couple of years, and they basically all will tell you that the thing that makes him happiest is seeing former players come back around with their families. And some of that is just like seeing people that you haven't seen in a while, but that he genuinely is really into like getting to know the man that they've become and like he really likes seeing how they've grown and you know started started families and i think that's relatively common among college coaches now mike martin probably takes it to more of an extreme than many uh, that's part of who he is. That's part of what makes him who he is. But I, I would guess that Mike Fox is is in a similar situation where, you know, if you're in college baseball, if you're in college anything, part of what you want to do on some level is develop people, right? Because you're choosing to work with young people. And, you know, if you wanted to just care about like the pure on coaching aspect, you'd probably be somewhere in Pro Bowl. Uh, but, you know, college sets you up with these restrictions about what you can and can't do, you know, limits the number of hours you can work with them on the field. Uh, so why do you put up with this or, or what else do you get out of it? You, you, get, the, you get the human side and, and you want to focus on the human side. And so I think that's part of why these guys talk about it that way. And, you know, Mike Fox, uh, you know, really does seem to care about the the family aspect of it. And, you know, I, he really cares about his own family a lot. And, you know, that's part of the reason why he, why he's walking away now. And, you know, I, it, it's easy to get that. It's also easy to, to see how, you know, a competitor like a Mike Fox would be really frustrated that, you know, they didn't win the national title. Uh, but, you know, yeah, you're right. Like eventually that, that stuff probably fades away. And, um, you know, it's really, really, really hard to win a national title. Like that, that's, that's one thing to take away here is that, you know, that when, when you look at the teams that North Carolina had over the years, uh, you know, the talent, Andrew Miller, uh, Matt Harvey, Daniel Bard, Dustin Ackley, uh, Kyle Seeger, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really impressive group, Colin Moran, uh, and they weren't able to get it done. It, it, it's just really hard to do. Um, but there is, there is more to it than uh, just the pure wins and, and the losses as important as those are uh, to, to all of these men who, who coach college baseball. 
All right, so we'll uh, we'll leave it there for this week. We uh, so it's a pretty meaty episode, as I said, uh, kind of a randomly busy Friday here in in August. Uh, but we'll we'll have more uh, to come in in the in the weeks as uh, we get closer to to fall and whatever that means for fall ball and, and college baseball. We'll continue to bring you that here uh, on the Baseball America College Podcast. So I would encourage you to subscribe. Uh, to to the podcast on your your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, where, wherever you're listening to podcasts, you can find us. Please uh, please subscribe, please rate, review, do whatever you can. All of that stuff helps us uh, and helps other people to find the podcast. So we we greatly appreciate all of that. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And I would encourage you to check out all of the, the works that we've referenced uh, throughout the show here over at BaseballAmerica.com. There is plenty to read, both in the college baseball realm and, uh, and beyond uh, as, as you know, the minor leagues um, continue to try and figure out what they're going to look like in the future. J.J. Cooper all over that and the major leagues continue their season. So check all of that out over at BaseballAmerica.com. Joe and I will be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Until then, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Joe. Thanks to Robert Woodard for joining us. Uh, We'll see you next time here on the Baseball America College podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.